You're listening to a message from Redeemer Bible Church. We hope you'll visit us in person, or you can find more messages like this one at RedeemerBibleChurch.com. Please continue standing for the reading of the scripture for the sermon today. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And he looked up and he said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes, and his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not enter the village. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, Who do the people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say? That I am. And Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But Turning uh, and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. These are the very words of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Before you pray, just so you know what's going on, uh, the intended sermon for this morning has become two sermons. Uh, I only will preach one of them today. Um, So we'll be a little bit on the shorter side, but I figure since many of you are still emerging from a food-induced coma, uh, that might be a blessing uh, to you. Let's pray together. Father, to hear your people singing a song, pleading with you that they may see Christ is so encouraging. I pray that it would be the sincere cry of our heart. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would attend to the preaching of the word and you would, in fact, give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing more important than this. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. I was reminded this past week of a man named Charles Templeton. Charles Templeton was a close friend and roommate of Billy Graham. Interestingly, when the two were young men in the ministry, Templeton was considered the more gifted of the two. Along with many others, Templeton helped form a ministry called 
Youth for Christ International. From 1944 to 1948, Templeton's evangelistic rallies packed 2,800 young people into the auditorium of Toronto's Massey Hall. Each Saturday evening, the audience heard what one reporter referred to as, quote, old-fashioned repent-and-be-saved gospel preaching. Each night, Templeton urged young men and women to confess their sins, accept Christ as their Savior, and with the Holy Spirit's help, live a life pleasing to God. According to Templeton, living for Jesus was the ultimate thrill. He told young men and women that Christ was the most exciting man who's ever lived, the most extraordinary man who's ever lived, and not just a man, but Christ was God himself. Sometime after these events, Templeton began to have serious doubts about his faith, questioning the claims of the Bible, wondering about the validity of Christ's miracles, and becoming very skeptical regarding the redemptive work of Christ. Sadly, in 1957, Templeton publicly declared himself to be an agnostic. Later in 1966, he published a memoir called Farewell to God, My Reasons for Rejecting the Christian Faith. At the end of Templeton's life, author Lee Strobel was able to sit down with him and here is just one excerpt from the heartbreaking interview Strobel conducted. When asked to assess Jesus, here was Templeton's answer. He was, Templeton began, the greatest human being who has ever lived. He was a moral genius. His ethical sense was unique. He was the intrinsically wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment was total and led to his own death, much to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that this was a form of greatness? Friends, what a tragic answer. This rejection of the biblical Christ is so tragic. But it's not limited to Charles Templeton. Just a few weeks ago, Jason Harrison and I were discussing those we grew up with, those who at one time professed faith in Christ, who have now rejected him completely. We could all point to Christian leaders who have abandoned their faith, as we might say. They've rejected the word of God. Our text this morning will serve us by both exhorting and cautioning us. It will exhort us to see the Christ of the Bible and to believe in him. But we will also find a caution we must accept Christ as he is. 
understanding who he claimed to be. We cannot refashion a Christ of our own making. To do this is to reject the Lord Jesus. The overarching aim of both this sermon and next week's, so two parts. I think it's the true intent of the text in front of us. It's this. To follow Christ, to follow Christ, you must see him clearly and believe that he is supremely satisfying. To follow Christ, you must see him clearly and believe that he is supremely satisfying. Now, if you're going to follow Jesus and find in him true satisfaction, you must answer three questions correctly. Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? And what is Jesus worth? We'll cover the first two questions today and the third, Lord willing, next week. Question number one, who is Jesus? Here we'll be focusing on verses 22 through 30. Look at the text again with me. And they came to Bethsaida, and some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, do not even enter the village. It's very important that we remember as we read these true stories, Mark records for us, that as Jesus is performing miracles, he's constantly teaching his disciples as well. We saw this in the second miraculous feeding, didn't we? The disciples who were slow to believe they needed the repetition of another feeding to see with increasing clarity who Jesus was. With this next miraculous encounter, Jesus is doing something very interesting. Uh, let's just take a moment to examine what happens. As we've seen so many times now, when Jesus arrives in a new place, he's quickly taken to someone who's in great need. This time, it's a blind man. Not surprisingly, Jesus has compassion on this man. Mark tells us that Jesus took the blind man by the hand and led him away from the village, and he spit on his eyes and laid his hands on the man, asking him, do you see anything? The man cannot see clearly, so Jesus touches the man's eyes again, and then he can see. Now, what do we have here? Is this the first instance of Jesus misfiring on a miracle? He attempts to heal the man thinking his plan will work, but it doesn't. So he has to move on to plan B. 
If we were present with Jesus, would we have heard him mumble, uh-oh, I thought the spit thing would work. Not sure what to do now. Well, friends, Jesus knows exactly what he's doing. And he heals this man in such a way that it will teach a clear lesson. I like the way one Bible commentator puts it. He writes, these verses constitute a visual parable that though historically true, also symbolizes the spiritual pilgrimage of the disciples. The two-step healing Jesus uses is intentional. It is meant to portray the gradual, step-by-step understanding of the disciples. You see, it's as if Jesus kneels down to heal the man, pauses to make sure his disciples are watching and then proceeds to partially restore the man's sight before he fully restores it. As he does, it's as if he looks at the disciples and says, brothers, this man is you. You are seeing me in part, but you need to see me wholly. Like the disciples, there are many who understand something about Jesus, but they do not see him in his fullness. Listen to how R.C. Sproul describes the disciples and likely some of us as well. Sproul writes, they were not in total darkness as the pagans were, Their eyes had beheld many of the marvelous things of Christ. They had some understanding, but they had not yet seen clearly. If they had been asked to describe Jesus, they might have said, in effect, I see a mighty oak walking around, but I do not really understand the full measure of who he is. One of my chief goals each Sunday, and it's really the goal of of everything we do at Redeemer, is to help every single person see Jesus as clearly as possible. Again, as I've said in weeks past, this is why we sing the songs we do. This is why we observe the Lord's table every week. This is why we practice Christ-centered exposition because everything, everything else we could do as a church pales in comparison to this. We must show you Christ in his fullness. So we pray. God, give us eyes to see the Lord Jesus in his splendor, in his beauty, and in response, give us the faith to follow hard after him. We don't want to be the disciples at this point in the story. Now, as Jesus continues to teach his disciples, he asks them a direct and necessary question. Look at verse 27. 
And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Again, Jesus is not just revealing his curiosity here, like he genuinely doesn't know. He's preparing to confront the disciples with the most important question in the universe. But first notice the initial answer from the disciples, verse 28. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. These are the popular answers that were being thrown around when people talked about Jesus. And none of them are bad answers per se. John the Baptist was a courageous and bold preacher of the gospel. Elijah was a great Old Testament prophet who was taken to heaven in a chariot of fire. Even to compare Jesus to another prophet was not to disparage him. But friends, all these answers miss the mark. Jesus was far more than a great prophet or a bold messenger. So Jesus presses the issue and asks the disciples directly in verse 29. But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Now, if you were to go all the way back to the beginning of Mark's gospel, you will find five accurate descriptions of who Jesus is. So I want you to do this with me. First, go to chapter 1, verse 1. Mark announces the subject matter of his gospel record. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Accurate. Now look down at verse 11 of chapter 1. This is the second one. God the Father declares about Jesus at his baptism, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Accurate. Notice the third in verse 24. The demon-possessed man refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God. Fourth, flip forward to chapter 3 in verse 11. Another demon-possessed man calls out to the Lord saying, Jesus, Son of the Most High God. Now go back to our text. In Mark 8, verse 29, we find the fifth. Accurate description of Jesus, and it's the first one offered by one of the 12 disciples. Peter says with great clarity to Jesus, you are the Christ. This is quite a turn in the story so far, isn't it? The disciples who have been so slow to understand who Jesus is 
are now putting forward by means of Peter a clear and accurate declaration. Jesus, you are the Christ. You are the one sent from heaven. You are the promised Messiah. In short, Peter is saying to Jesus, you are who you have claimed to be. You are not a liar. You are Lord. Friends, in this interaction between Jesus and his disciples, we find a profound reminder. It does not matter. Maybe this is especially for children and our students. It does not matter who all the people around you think Jesus is. Public opinion on the identity of Jesus is utterly meaningless. Who did Jesus claim to be? Who does the Bible say that Jesus is? This is all that matters. You see this in the contrast. Who do people say that I am? Who do you say? It does not matter who everybody says Jesus is. I want to know who do you say he is. This is the question you have to answer. One pastor says it this way. Popular and trendy views of Jesus must always surrender to the clear and consistent witness of Scripture. Resist the trends. Stand on the Word of God. Personally, publicly, and even proudly declare your allegiance to Jesus, proclaiming that He is the Son of God, the Messiah the one and only Savior of the world. The first and most basic question that you must answer correctly if you're going to follow Jesus and in him find true satisfaction is this. Who is Jesus? And again, not who does everybody say he is, Not the Sunday school answer, but who do you believe Jesus is? Second, what has Jesus done? Who is Jesus? What has Jesus done? Here we're focusing on verses 31 through 33. As the disciples have now revealed that they are seeing Christ more clearly, Jesus continues to teach them. Verse 31, he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. Now, up to this point, Jesus has only vaguely alluded to his death. Here he states it plainly for his disciples. The Son of Man must suffer and be killed. As Jesus has done before, he is referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He's putting together some puzzle pieces for the disciples and for all who will hear his teaching. 
in Daniel 7. There is a mysterious figure referred to as the Son of Man. And this Son of Man is given an everlasting kingdom by God, or the Ancient of Days, as we read in the text. Okay, but there's something else. Jesus says this one who is the son of man will also suffer, be rejected by the religious leaders, and he will die. That sounds like the suffering servant from Isaiah 53. Is this all referring to the same person? Jesus would answer yes. He's teaching the disciples. He's teaching us. Jesus, the Christ, he is the one that we read about in Daniel and in Isaiah. The one standing before the disciples is the king who receives and will reign over an everlasting kingdom. But this kingdom will be established not through political triumph, but through death and resurrection. While we hear this as glorious good news, this is not how the disciples heard it. Notice what Peter does. Verse 32. He interrupts the teacher and rebukes him. Now, why on earth would he be doing this? Because in the mind of the disciples, this is not what the Messiah would do. A Messiah would come and conquer. He would liberate his people, but he wouldn't die. In essence, Peter is saying to Jesus, Jesus, you're wrong about the Messiah. Perhaps this is why Jesus responds the way he does in verse 33. That's, that's not something that should be said to the Messiah. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. That's quite a response from Jesus to the one who just moments earlier declared him to be the Christ. Why does Jesus respond so strongly to Peter's rebuke? One Bible commentator explains, why does he call Peter Satan? Doesn't that seem a little harsh? I think the answer is fairly simple. Satan once offered Jesus a shortcut. He could have all the kingdoms of the world without going to the cross. Peter's teaching is taking a page right out of that playbook this is the devil's playbook. Peter is appalled at the idea of a Messiah who will suffer and die while Jesus knows there is no other way. This is how he would bear the curse of sin. 
satisfy the wrath of God and defeat sin and death. This is how the work of redemption would be accomplished. There is no other way. Now, what was underneath this unfortunate and unwise response to Jesus by Peter? Peter was revealing the fact that he primarily wanted a Messiah of his own making. I think this is the, that last statement of verse 33. He had decided what the Messiah should do and what he shouldn't do, and squarely within the category of what the Messiah shouldn't do was suffer and die. Jesus is really rebuking Peter for his pride. He needed to humble himself and submit his worldly desires to the perfect plan of God. Peter, in essence, is saying, I think this is how it should work. Jesus says, no, that's not how it's going to work. Peter had elevated his own plan above the plan of God. He needed to realize that his plan was inferior to God's plan. And I don't know about you, but this is just one of many times that I can see myself in Peter. Well, you may affirm with a glad heart God's perfect plan of redemption that the Messiah would suffer and die and he would rise again. Outside of that, you may have tremendous trouble not elevating your own plan above God's. Well, this is the way I think it should work. This would be great, don't you think? God I think the same heart of pride can well up inside each of us. And this is a good reminder. If God had a perfect plan for redemption, he can handle everything that you're going to experience in your life. Trust him. Peter looked forward to what Jesus would do. And now we look back at what Jesus has already done. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He had to suffer. He had to die. This was the perfect plan. The first and most basic question that you must answer correctly if you are going to follow Jesus and in him find true satisfaction, who is Jesus? Second, what has Jesus done? I want to bring this sermon to a conclusion by making an appeal to you, an appeal that is aimed at loving you well pleading with you to never walk the path of Charles Templeton or anyone you might know. 
who has walked that same path. As you consider who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, I beg you to believe in him. Believe in him. Believe in Jesus Christ, who is eternal and immortal, who himself made everything, and apart from him, nothing has come into being. Believe in Jesus Christ, who in the fullness of time was sent by the Father to be conceived by the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb, who was born under the law so that he might redeem those under bondage to the law. Believe in Jesus Christ who lived a sinless life, who preached the gospel of the kingdom, who healed the sick, gave sight to the blind, raised the dead, and welcomed little children to himself. Believe in Jesus Christ who willingly laid down his life as our redeemer to satisfy God as a propitiation for our sin, who absorbed the Father's wrath through his death on the cross. Believe in Jesus Christ who was buried in a borrowed tomb and three days later was raised by the glory of the Father. In short, brothers and sisters, do not reject Jesus, but run to him in faith. You will not regret it. You will find in Christ an all-sufficient and all-satisfying Savior. This is my plea to you this morning. Believe in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.